Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Charles Murray. He is, of course, one of the most important social scientists of our time. The books, well-known books, include Losing Ground, The Bell Curve, and Coming Apart. Uh, People know those uh, in the audience here well enough. I don't even need to say the subtitles of those books. There is a new book just out entitled Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Murray. It's my pleasure. Uh, First question. Uh, the general content of the book, in coming apart, you you actually held off on uh, racial comparisons. You focused upon on whites, different class groupings of whites, but you're returning to that issue. Why return to it now? Didn't really have any choice. Uh, Last summer, I was appalled by the uniformity with which the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, all the major networks bought into the accusations that America is systemically racist. And the basis for that, uh, those accusations were mostly at the time, last July, uh, policing. The police behave differently in black neighborhoods than they do in white neighborhoods. But there was also a lot of accusations about uh, the fact that uh, Google doesn't have enough senior managers uh, that who are black. And in both of these cases, which are presented as evidence of disparities that can only be explained by racism, there are other explanations that make our multiracial society complicated. And those two other explanations, the two truths to which the subtitle refers, are first that police patrol officers entering low-income black neighborhoods are facing an entirely different policing environment than they face in a white suburb. And as professional, responsible police officers, they will behave differently. The second truth is that Google doesn't have a lot of senior managers because Google hires at the very top of the IQ ladder. I mean, their senior people are probably around 140, 145. And there aren't that many uh, African-Americans coming into the labor force with with that elevated level because there is a difference of means in in cognitive ability, which has big consequences at, sorry about the jargon, but at the tails of the distribution at at the extreme. So I was faced with uh, saying I could just keep quiet about all this or talk about it. And I had to talk about it because the accusations of systemic racism and the identity politics that go with us are, and this is not hyperbole, an existential threat to what has made America special. Right. You know, uh, we'll get into the data on on that uh, 
because that's really where the argument should, should be, the evidence. Uh, but you begin with uh, the American creed. Uh, and you do talk about this as an existential threat to the American creed. What do you find, what are the core beliefs of that creed? Well, the book to read, if you want to get a good discussion of the American creed, is Sam Huntington's book that came out in the early 2000s. I think it was his last book called Who Are We? And he discusses at length, but it comes down to this. It, it comes out of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator, etc. But the way that was translated uh, into the American creed is you can come to the United States and it doesn't make any difference who your parents were, what your religion is, your race, color, or creed. Uh, you can go as far in the United States as your hard work will take you. And the reason that will happen is because we're going to judge you by what you bring to the table as an individual, not what group you belong to. That is utterly central. I don't need to tell you that we, we have fallen short of making good on that, starting with the failure in the Declaration uh, to condemn slavery. But as a nation, we've made incredible progress on it, too. Indeed. And, and th th well, the, the individualist ahead. focus, as, as you put it, uh, you, you do say that there was this moment when we did have a group focus, and that was the Civil Rights Act. But that that group focus was thought to be a, a, a one-time exception to the individualism that was expressed in, in the Declaration and the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. What happened? Why did why, what happened? Why, why couldn't that be a one-time example? Uh, what happened was that a year later, Lyndon Johnson said that, no, it's not enough to have equal rights and legal equality. We must have equality, in fact, which meant equal outcomes. It was, even at that time, an extremely foolish goal to proclaim. And I say extremely foolish because we knew even at that time that there were big group differences between blacks and Americans, who were the only two major races in the country in 1964. Mm -hmm. uh, there were major differences, and no matter what the causes of those differences were, uh, you could say that they were entirely environmental. There were good arguments for making that case. Uh, but that didn't change the situation in 1965. In 1965, you could not say, we're going to have the same proportion of African-Americans who are physicians as uh, whites who are physicians. It wasn't going to happen. For whatever it causes, there simply wasn't the, uh, the level of cognitive talent at that time which would have permitted that. But we took that as our goal. Well, how do you get to that goal? You fake it, and I'm sorry. This is this is uh, perhaps using more inflammatory language than I should, but you fake it through aggressive affirmative action, so that you have double standards for hiring people. And if you have double standards for hiring people, whereby you are hiring African Americans who have lower uh, intellectual qualifications than the white Americans you hire, you can jack up the numbers. Uh, but you are also creating a lot of problems at the same time. And after 50 years, those problems have come home to haunt us. One thing that you note when we get into the data on educational achievement is we, we did a lot of gap closing th 
through the, the racial achievement gap in, in say test scores through the 70s and the 80s. And we could, we could attribute that to the altered environmental circumstances uh, whereby, yeah. you know, school funding might've been, might have been uh, equalized a bit more in, in low income or, or white and black schools. But that since the 90s, the gap has been persistent. We haven't done any closing of no. the gap. Uh, why, why, I'm jumping ahead here, but that's okay. Why, why did the closing stop? You got two main arguments, and they actually are more easily understood if you don't look at the year the test was administered, but look at the years in which the people who took the test were born. In a lot of ways, that tells you more. So, so it's true that in terms of the year the test was administered, the gap stopped closing in the late 1980s. In terms of the year of birth in which it stopped closing, it was 1973. There's nothing magic about that particular year. But if you think in terms of the early 70s, here's one plausible scenario. The environment in which black children grew up in the 1940s and 1930s improved remarkably in the post-war period through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And that improvement, and a lot of it just simply consisted of, of, of blacks getting an elementary education, which many were deprived of before that. Because of that, you had an improved environment for, for black children, and that's reflected in a closing IQ gap. And then in the 1970s, you had that colliding with a variety of other trends in the black environment in which children grew up, which were negative. The, uh, the rapidly rising rate of single-parent households, mm-hmm. uh, the dropout of males from the labor force. I can go through the, a familiar list of social problems, many of which I talked about in Losing Ground many, many years ago, uh, which would account for the stopping of the, of the closing. And I will tell you, maybe gratuitously, why, but why get myself in trouble, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. Look, there's another explanation, and that is, Let's say that the gap is is partly environmental and is partly genetic. If that's the case, then the logic says, well, we we improved the environment and pretty much uh, closed the gap that was caused by the environment and the residual is genetic. Mm -hmm. I went ahead and and offered that second explanation, not because I want to go to the wall for it, uh, but it, it seems to me that in thinking about causes, this absolute terror that people have had that there can be a partly genetic component has to be countered because modern genetics is making progress extremely rapidly. And the probability is that some portion of it is genetic, along with a whole bunch of other differences between groups that are partly genetic. And among cognitive scientists or or psychometricians, the only debate, I I mean, isn't the only real debate as, as you put, just how much? I mean, that, that there is some oh, yeah. heritability factor. That's not controversial, is it? The, the, the uh, notion that there is heritability of IQ in population at large, yeah. that's around 50 to 60 percent, is now no, no serious person who knows the data argues with that anymore. However, it is also true that it is not logically necessary that uh, heritability of the population at large explains the difference in IQ scores among groups. There's, uh, you can dig out your old copy 
of the bell curve where Dick Kernstein and I explained that in some detail. But it's not necessarily true that the heritability also applies to differences between groups. But I, I guess I have to interject something here. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to talk about causes, all right? And, and it's important to talk about them in terms of policy going forward. But this book explicitly says, no, that's not the topic of this book. I don't care what the difference, uh, different causes of the uh, higher black violent crime rate are. The existence of that difference affects what's going on in policing of black neighborhoods. And that has to be recognized when we try to explain the disparities. And the existence of the difference in means of cognitive ability explain a lot of what's going on in the labor market in ways that don't have to invoke racism. They just have to invoke the facts on the ground that should be openly acknowledged and that we are ignoring. Mm-hmm. Tell us, uh, give us an overview of where uh, of the IQ data uh, about cognitive ability. Uh, where do the group differences stand uh, among different different races at this time? Okay, I, 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 through conservative estimates of the magnitude of the gaps, conservative meaning I try, I erred on the side of underestimating them rather than overestimating. Basically, on top, I want all any white supremacists who might be listening to absorb this information. The group on top is East Asians. And actually, South Asians are probably up there, too, along with the East Asians. And, and one estimate of their current IQ mean is about 108. That might be slightly too high, but it's about right. Uh, whites are pretty solidly grounded at about 103. The mean for the whole population, the test is norm to a mean of 100 for the entire population. And uh, Latinos are around 94, and Blacks are around 91. Uh, the technical criticism so far of my numbers is that I did indeed underestimate the size of the black-white gap, and I'm quite sure they're right. But the nice thing is, for any of your listeners who like to play with databases, uh, online at the Encounter Books website, you can download the Excel spreadsheets with all the data that I used to write those chapters. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Now, I remember when uh, challenges were going forward uh, to affirmative action in, uh, well, a few years ago. Uh, people were arguing, well, this is, this is just to uh, bring back a, a heavily white population in those Ivy League schools. And from what I saw, those spaces that might be lost to uh, black and, and Latino students, they wouldn't go to whites, would they? They'd go to Asians. Yes, the, the, I'm laughing because the schools, these elite schools are caught in a bind. I don't have much sympathy for them. I think they have grotesquely mishandled the whole issue. But the bind is this. 
if they just went strictly according to objective measures of academic ability to do to get a great college education and do well, these these schools would be 40, 50 or percent Asian or more. Caltech still admits pretty much exclusively by uh, test scores. And I don't know the exact percentage, but it's around 60% Asian. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, schools sort of say, we can't do that. And because they certainly have to make sure they have enough, in quotation marks, blacks and enough Latinos. So they, they have tacitly said, well, we'll have about this percentage of blacks and Latinos in our classes. They say tacitly, it's amazing how close the different Ivy League schools come in the percentages that they admit. Uh, but that didn't leave much room for whites. And then you got the legacy whites to, uh, to worry about. And then you've got the athletes who are white you've got to worry about. And so this is a long-winded explanation of the fact not only are these places uh, that wouldn't go to whites, the least represented group in the elite schools are working-class whites. There's just no room for them. They just can't be squeezed in. And that's, uh, that's one of the sad stories about the affirmative action. That's the other sad story for the universities is, let's take you have a, a really talented black kid who wants to be an engineer. He could be a really solid, good, competent engineer. He ought to go to Iowa State. He ought to go to Kansas State. He ought to go to uh, uh, a whole bunch of other state universities where he can be a terrific engineer. What do we do with the test scores that he has? He's, he's led into MIT. He's led into Caltech maybe. Well, not Caltech, but, but he's led into some other elite university. And he is in the bottom 5, 10, 15% of the MIT class. And all at once, this kid who is really smart feels really dumb. And he can't quite figure out why, but if the schools would release their dropout rates, these elite schools for their black and Latino students who are admitted with very low test scores relative to the others, they, I think, would re- reveal a scandalous story. And, and that's the key, relative to the others. And that, that's the tail issue, right? I mean, when, when we're talking yeah. about uh, uh, these elite schools, you're talking about the top two or three percent of, 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 the, of the high school graduate population. No, no, no. Talk, talk about the top half of the top percent. Okay, okay. That's more like <laughs> even, it. Even okay. And, and uh, the, you know, the, these young black students, they've been promised everything by the recruiters. This is the greatest place for you. You are going to prosper like never before. And then they're, they're pre-med and they walk into organic chemistry and, and they might have had 85th percentile SAT math scores, which is extremely high for African-American students. And suddenly they're in they're in a class with ninety eighth percentile, SAT and yeah they're they're the bottom of the list. Yeah, and, and I just want to emphasize this is not a racial thing. No, whites get demoralized in those so those situations. I went to MIT in graduate school. Okay, uh, I was in political science, and I think probably a lot of MIT grads wouldn't consider that really being at MIT. <laughs> but uh, I took courses in math and some other things where I was thrown in with uh with the other mit people and i i had to drop out of a couple of those classes because i couldn't do them yeah uh and then in other cases i was uh, when it came to programming which i loved 
I wasn't very good at it. I loved it, but I wasn't very good at it compared to the other people. Right. And that is demoralizing for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you talk about Latinos. Why are they difficult to classify, understand as a racial group? Because they such a big umbrella. It goes from every, you know, Latino groups in the United States range from wealthy Cubans uh, who are almost entirely of European ethnic uh, racial origin who have moved to Miami uh, to Guatemalans who are uh, almost 100% pure Mayan and everything in between with a very large proportion being what are called mestizos. Uh, these, these mixes of European and indigenous heritage that go back three or four hundred years. Mm-hmm. These, these have, people have radically different environments in which they were raised. Uh, they, they also have genetic distinctiveness across within groups. So I, like everybody else, am stuck with, uh, with having to lump them together if I'm going to talk about test scores, but I put a lot of caveats in there about interpreting those test scores. Yeah. You, you note something that, you know, I, it, was, it was obvious after you note it, but I didn't quite realize until you said that the racial population, the proportions of the U.S. population up until the 1960s were just were very consistent, even going back to the founding. And they were really just blacks and whites. What happened in yeah. the 60s? Uh, well, we passed the uh, Immigration Reform Act. It was passed in that rush of legislation that followed the death of John F. Kennedy and the ascent of a master legislator, uh, the former Lyndon Johnson. And so it was decided we're going to completely revamp the immigration policy, let in lots more people who are not from European origins, and we will allow people to come in for reuniting families. It just was a very, very open immigration policy, and it simply the world to to uh, and people responded to that. So we went from in 1960 census it was 85 percent white and it was 12 percent black I think and the rest was split among uh, Latinos and Asians and with a very few am- uh, in American Indians and now uh, non-Latino whites are down to 60 percent of the population. Latinos are up to about 19%, and uh, Asians are up to 6 or 7%, which, by the way, if that continues, and I think it's a good thing for America, uh, is going to radically change the composition of America's upper class. Okay. Uh, the, next, the, the, the next truth about race in America, as you mentioned, uh, about violent crime rates, which, uh, and the background of which played so much a part in the uh, turmoil of last summer. What are the allegations about uh, the, the, the penal system in America, and what do the data show? Okay, we, we have the good fortune of finally having much better data on this issue than we've had before. Uh, until now, we've been reliant on FBI statistics that only are published in ways that give us racial breakdowns for the entire country. And people who uh, are social science uh, 
aficionados or methodologists out there will recognize that as a problem known as the ecological fallacy. That's too big an aggregation to, to make sense of the data. Recently, because of the open data movement, you have a, a number of police departments that allow you to download their entire arrest records for the past several years. And for 13 of those major cities, they include the race of the uh, arrestee as one of the variables. And those 13 cities include New York, Chicago, L.A., and Washington, D.C., along with some smaller ones. And what they reveal is that the rate of arrests of African-Americans relative to the African-American population is, depending on the city, somewhere around nine or ten times the rate of arrests for violent crimes for whites relative to the white population. These are very, very large imbalances. Got to put in a very important proviso here. Very few members of any race commit violent offenses. Very, very few. Small proportions. You cannot tell by looking at the color of a person's skin whether you are in danger when you meet an individual. You have no information worth worrying about because of knowing their race. But among the very small proportion of people who do commit violent offenses, You've got these big disproportions there who are black. Where does the argument then for systemic racism in the penal system lie? It's a mix, you know, of, of legitimate arguments and illegitimate ones. There, there are interesting uh, analyses out there that say that drug offenses are treated very differently for African Americans and whites. And I haven't made a, you know, a specialty of study of reviewing that literature, but I'm willing to believe that's a problem. Uh, there is obviously, it would drive me to the wall and maybe to become a revolutionary if I were a black and was getting stopped by the police because they were profiling me. And I fully understand uh, why this is so anger-producing. Then you've got to go to the alternative problems. First, if you've if you've got a whole lot more proportionally blacks than whites who are convicted of serious violent offenses, you're going to have those same proportionally proportional differences in incarceration. And also, when you get to police behavior, the police have this impossible task. They are supposed to ignore race in terms of being fair. But they're also supposed to do the most efficient job in uh, identifying who committed crimes. And to ignore race in that case is unprofessional. So it's not simple. But to say that the differences are evidence of racism way oversimplifies a very complicated problem. And and the, the police officers, we, we can't really discuss the causes of these disproportions in acts of violent crime, they've got to deal with the results. Yeah. I mean, they're just responding yep. to, to, I mean, let's, let's let the, what, what let, let's the, the, the social scientists dig into, into causes, but really the, the, the police, the, the law enforcement side of it really should begin with the data of commission of crimes that you compile. Right. And, and also, let's think of it in case, uh, the case of a specific issue. Suppose you have 
couple of kids who've uh, been reported for getting in a fracas and injuring each other and a serious aggravated assault. Uh, and one is in a fraternity party at the university, and the other is in a low-income black neighborhood. The, the cops go to the fraternity party, and the kids are probably drunk. It's very unlikely that one of those fraternity boys is going to pull a gun and fire at the police or pull a knife and attack the police. No, they may be real jerks, but they're probably not going to do that. A, a police officer making the same kind of arrest, but of African-American 20-year-olds uh, who, have, who are high on something has to think in terms of a genuinely different risk that they pose to him. And he must, could be she, of course, he must also take extra steps to protect himself, to be establish his authority, to call for backup if necessary, a whole bunch of things that are not reflecting his racism, but a realistic appraisal of where things stand at the time he's trying to do his job. You know, when we get to the, the, the as, as, as you put it, you know, the panic, the, the neurotic anxiety with talking about these group differences, in, and again, on the, on the results thing, why is it so hard for people to believe that one can acknowledge group differences and yet still, in specific situations, judge people as individuals? Not to let a prejudging come into like, whether we should hire this person or, or not, or whether you know what you think about about this person you wanna you wanna date or, or whatever. What? What's so hard about about that distinction? It should be hard. It shouldn't be hard. And you know who has a better appreciation of that than just about anybody else, I think, to talk about whites, are whites who are K-12 teachers and whites who are police officers. Because in both of those cases, they work in an environment where there are many people uh, in their office or in their school who are black, who are Latino, many. And this is not true, by the way, of an awful lot of elites. They do not have a lot of uh, blacks and Latinos in their workplaces. But you have police officers know very well, white police officers, there are some terrific black cops in the force. And they know very well there are some cops who would never be on the force if it weren't for, for affirmative action. And they just have to deal with that reality, and they can do it. And similarly with teachers, that there are brilliant black teachers in their school, and there are teachers who shouldn't be there, but they're there because they're black. Whites in those situations know exactly what I'm talking about when I say let's judge people as individuals. Somebody who's working at a law firm where they have maybe one black and one Latino is not comfortable with this in the same way that whites who work with large numbers of minorities are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, f final question, Dr. Murray. You, you have two issues at the end of the book. There is one the solution that is not within our grasp, and two, the solution that is within our grasp. Give us those two. Okay, well, I've sort of switched since the book was published, and I kind of wish I'd said, let's focus on the solution that's not within our grasp, and let's make it within our grasp. That solution is the federal government and state governments return to a policy in which race is not a morally permissible reason to treat Americans differently. There will be no programs uh, no legal requirements, no incentives, no regulations that preferentially treat one group over another. Period. That's what I want to say. That period. Zero. Back, back to 
judge them by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Now, I've said that's not within our grasp because it's not politically practicable. I'm beginning to think, who cares if it's politically practicable? That's the only real solution. The other solution I say would be a big help would be if we just simply started talking out loud again that the ideal is still a colorblind society. Mm -hmm. The ideal still is to judge people as individuals. If Joe Biden would stop talking about uh, systemic racism and just proclaim that as the ideal, it wouldn't change his policies and affirmative action and so forth, but at least it would reflect what I believe to be the opinion of the overwhelming majority of whites, blacks, of Latinos and Abasians. It's a good opinion. <laughs> Let's go with it. The book is Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. Charles Murray, thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.